The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. This is a scripture that's very familiar to you, I know, and it will become even more familiar to you as we're going to look at this again on uh, Tuesday evening in our candlelight service. Uh, This morning, it was really a joy to speak about the unspeakable gift that God has given the world. Uh, Just speaking about an unspeakable gift will give you some idea, idea of the difficulty of preaching a sermon like that, and you thought that your life was hard. Uh, But that's a difficult thing to do. And I did my best, meager as it was, to talk to you about this wonderful gift that God sent into the world. Now, the past few weeks, we have been uh, studying about worship in our Sunday evening services. And one of the things that we've talked about is the danger of being too familiar with God. And I think that this might be part of the problem of uh, Christmas among Christians today, is that the story has become so familiar to us that We just don't step back and look at it in the wonder and amazement that it really should strike to our hearts. I mean, just the the miraculous things that God did, that the eternal God became man, that he came in human flesh, that he was born of a virgin. I mean, just uh, incomprehensible miracles. And then to be 100% God and 100% man, even more incomprehensible. And then as we look at the story, the the perfect orchestration of history, the perfect detail in, in making, in Christ making his entrance into the world at exactly the right time, according to all the prophecies that had been gone had gone before, it's just a totally fascinating part of the story. Now let's take a look at this as we read from Luke chapter two, beginning in verse number one. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing 
which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. I mentioned this morning that our family celebrated Christmas early. Uh, We got everybody that we could together. Uh, Clarissa was here from San Diego with her 14 children. And uh, Jared and Lauren were there too from about 10 blocks away. And everybody gathered into our house. And it was really a lot of fun, but we had a house full and um, just a lot of commotion and everything that uh, went on there. But Christmas is really a lot of fun. And we got the kids together and you know, all, everybody together, everybody except Nathan. And uh, we hope to see him in the next couple of weeks when we go to Chicago. But um, we had them all together and we had a lot of fun. And the kids uh, opening their gifts. And you know how children are. As soon as they open those Christmas gifts, they're already thinking about what they want for next year. And we really have a lot of fun at Christmas But I think that most of what happens at Christmas focuses more on us than it does about what happened when God sent Jesus into the world. Uh, A lot of excitement about Christmas, but maybe not so much excitement as we should have about what God has done. And I can imagine that uh, Christmases in your home are much like ours. I mean, we hardly ever find a a home anymore, a Christian home any longer, where people just stop on Christmas Day and a devotion is given and we talk to the kids about what happened on Christmas and really set the story straight so they very clearly understand it. But instead, we have a Sunday service like we do here and uh, after Sunday services are over where we talk about Christmas, then we pretty much forget it and then just go on with with the rest of our day. But I think that we really need to Uh, understand Christmas a little bit better about what Christ did. And I know that Christmas is not commanded in the scripture, but I don't believe that God is upset with us because we would take another day to set aside in order for us to celebrate the fact that Jesus came into the world. But God didn't give us Jesus just so that we could have another day off of work, to have a holiday to get off at work. And he didn't give us an excuse that we could get our families together and uh, gather around a big meal and eat too much. Uh, Rather, God had a very definite purpose in Christmas. His plan encompassed an eternal plan, and that is the redemption of man from sin and our reconciliation to God. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about that in in this evening's message, along with some other things. But first, I want you to see that imposed upon the Christmas story, superimposed upon it, was a providential decree that God was working in the plan that uh, Caesar made in order to bring Mary and Joseph into Bethlehem when they were living in Nazareth. Now, verse number one of a text says the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And the Bible says that that was Caesar's decree, but we know that it was actually God who was preparing the world for the exact time of the arrival of the Savior. The Apostle Paul tells us in, um, in um, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4, he said, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law. 
when the fullness of time was come. And that time was when Israel was at its lowest spiritual ebb. It was at a time when it was right for the Gentiles to be brought into the covenant of grace. It was a time when the world was lying in the wickedness of sin, when the Jewish people were no longer allied of any kind to the rest of the world, when there was no real true worship in Israel, and when there was precious little truth that was found anywhere, that's when God descended that he, uh, decided that he would send Jesus into the world. And when Caesar made the decree, it it wasn't a a mere stroke of luck that it coincided with the time, the exact time that Christ would come. And neither was God looking for an excuse that would work in with the plan that he wanted in order to bring Christ to us. But this happened according to God's decree. God's behind this. God is the one who moved Caesar to uh, declare this census. And that's not an uncommon tactic for God. As you look into the Old Testament, you'll find that many times that God used heathen nations to work out his plan. The chastisement upon Israel by Assyria, by Babylon, by Persia, by Egyptians, often, uh, most often, if not all of the time, that was working within God's plan for Israel in order that they might come back to him. So just like the New Testament says that it was by the counsel and the determinate foreknowledge of God that Christ was rejected and crucified. So when Caesar made this decree, this is God working in him to cause him to declare a tax and in turn the movement of the people of Israel. God's activity working in divine providence. Now why then was the decree necessary? Well, it was necessary because there was a promise The Old Testament is filled with promises of God concerning the Messiah. And we saw in the scriptures this morning certain prophecies that were given about his birth. And uh, a particular prophecy that we read about was the place of his birth. Micah, who was one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And just to remind you that a minor prophet doesn't mean that he's insignificant. It just means that the prophecy that he wrote was of a lesser amount than the other prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Uh, He didn't write as much prophecy as they did, but he did write this prophecy about Christ's birth, and he gave it 700 years before Christ was born. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now God made that promise, and when God makes a promise, it must be fulfilled. And that's because God is absolute truth. And there's one thing about the prophecy of the Bible that's different about modern prophecies. Whenever a prophecy fails, then you know that that prophecy did not come from God. God is always absolute truth. And God said that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And God was sure to make that happen. And indeed, when Israel searched the scriptures to find out where the Messiah would be born, they would never accept anyone as a Messiah, claiming to be the Messiah, if that person had not been born in the place where God said it had to be Bethlehem. Now, that actually forms the basis for the decree of Caesar. And so we would note further that there was a problem. Well, what is the problem? Well, the problem is that the prophecy said Bethlehem, but Mary and Joseph were not in Bethlehem. They were in Galilee. Uh, They lived in Nazareth, and there was no reason 
with Mary, nine months pregnant, that Joseph was going to load her up and take her all the way to Bethlehem. Now, Nazareth is about 70 or 80 miles from Bethlehem, and uh, we know there were no expressways at that time that they could travel. Uh, Today, we can travel 80 miles in about an hour, or at least I can. If you ride with me, I can get you there in an hour. Uh, but then this was, a, this was really a very hard journey. And so Joseph was not about to endanger the health of Mary by putting her on a donkey and making her ride 80 miles when she's nine months pregnant. That is, unless he had to. And as it turns out, he had to. And that's because Caesar had made it mandatory that the Israelites should return to the place of their birth in order to take a census. And so Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth, and they had to go to Bethlehem. And and you have to think that this long journey and the lateness of the hour in which the decree came, that it surely must have been God's divine providence that Mary would go into labor by by that hard trip and that she would arrive in Bethlehem at exactly the right time when she was about to deliver. And interestingly enough, what God did was to move hundreds of people at this time to make it happen. Perhaps even thousands of people were moved. They all had to go back to their ancestral homes for the taxation because that made it easier for the Roman government to keep up with it. You see, with God, he doesn't mind inconveniencing people. He doesn't care whether you're inconvenienced. Now, you may not be comfortable with God does, and I'm sorry for that, but God's not sorry about it. He doesn't care what you think about it. God does whatever he wants. So this is God in charge. It's an act of his providential will. And so there was this providential decree to ensure that the Savior would be born exactly according to the predetermined plan. Now we notice next that it is a promised delivery, that God said a child would be born. Now Isaiah said that in his prophecy. He said that a virgin will conceive. This morning I talked about the virgin birth, and so I won't go over that again. But aside from that, and that is a monumental subject, aside from the miracle of the virgin birth, there are some notations that we need to make about the way that this delivery came about. Now, first of all, we would look at the place of his birth. And, And I don't mean Bethlehem. I mean beyond the place of Bethlehem. Micah's prophecy said that it would be Bethlehem, but he also said that this one to be born would be a ruler. Isaiah said the same. He said the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's Isaiah chapter 9. The government will be on his shoulders. He is a ruler. And Luke said, or else or, uh, he was quoting uh, the words or writing down the words of the angel. The angel said, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. So he was born a king to sit upon the throne of David. Now, let me say something about that. He would sit upon the throne of David. Now, that's one of the problems that I have with covenant theology because one of the things they don't do, they never get Christ on the throne of David. They never get him into a literal, physical kingdom. But do you think the people of God understood it to be a spiritual kingdom? No, covenant theologians are always big on the immediate context of the Word of God and how the statements would have been commonly understood. Well, do you think that... God's people thought that the Messiah would sit only on an ethereal spiritual throne. I mean, all the time, I mean, they're, they're being physically beat up by Assyrians and by Babylon and by, by, Babylon and by Rome and, and by other nations. 
Do you think with all this physical abuse that they were taking, that they were going to be content that God should establish just a spiritual throne? And this is why you have all the confusion later when Jesus came and in his first advent that he didn't immediately throw the Romans out and put Israel back into power. There was no physical kingdom when Christ came at first. And that's the way the apostles understood it because they kept asking, when is this kingdom going to come? And Jesus promised there would be a kingdom. And he told those apostles that they would sit upon 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So we know, we have confidence that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom. When he comes again, his kingdom will cover the entire world. And Israel then will be more than restored. Israel will be embellished to control territory far beyond the original borders of Canaan. But returning to this thought, Jesus would be born a king, but he wasn't born in a palace, and the clothes that they put on him were not what you would find in the lavish nursery of a palace, but he was wrapped in a gunny sack and laid in a feeding trough. Now, you see, God had all of these people move from one place to another, and they had taken up all of the rooms that were in Bethlehem and that relegated Mary to give birth in a cattle stall. And this was by God's design as as much as any other part of this. There were no parties that were given at his birth. There was no ticker tape parade. But he entered into the world humbly. And that humility would be the lot of Christ during his entire life. That humility and poverty were his station so that no one would be drawn to him because of wealth. A few days ago, I heard John Hagee say that Jesus was not poor, and that Jesus lived in a big house. Now, it's a strange thing that he said, I don't have any place to lay my head, and the houses that he stayed in were other people's houses. Jesus didn't want anyone to follow him because he was a meal ticket, but rather he wanted unfeigned love, he wanted devotion to him, and he drew no one because of worldly offers of fame and fortune. See, Jesus was no charismatic word of faith, health, wealth, and prosperity preacher like Hagee. He proved what he would become by his birth in a lowly manger. Now, let me make a couple of suggestions to you as to why this particular place of his birth. One of them is the immediate reason, and one is the eternal reason. The immediate reason is we've, we've just read it in the story. The immediate reason is the shepherds. How are you going to get these lowly, smelly, lowest of the low society shepherds ever into the presence of a king? They can't come into the presence of a king. I mean, I promise you, there weren't any shepherds in Herod's palace. The immediate reason is that the shepherds would be, get, would be able to get in to see him when they were awakened and they were amazed by the angelic host that told them this story. And they said, we must go and see this thing that the angels have told us about. But there was more than just the immediate reason. I think there was also an eternal reason. There were more than just old shepherds that needed to find him, but there were a lot of other people that needed to find him too. There, there were a lot of old sinners that needed to find Jesus. And they needed to be able to identify with him. People like you and me, and we are those people as well, we need to be identi able to identify with him. I mean, old sinners don't need an untouchable uh, king. We need someone who's like us so we can come to him, so we can, uh, he can sympathize with us. And don't under misunderstand this when I say it. I don't mean somebody who's made like us as sinners, but someone who's gone through all the hardships of life. Someone who's felt the feelings of our infirmities, as the Word of God says. 
He didn't need to be born in a palace with servants, not with people waiting on him, because that's not the way that we are. He, he wouldn't have been where we have been if that's the way that he came. So he didn't need servants to serve him. He needed to be a servant. And that's what he told people. I mean, the idea that Jesus was wealthy shoots down the, this, this very necessary part of Christ's work, that he was to have a servant's heart. And he came from the perspective of the poor and the lowly in order that he might teach his disciples that they needed to have a servant's heart. They needed to wait on people. And so he became the lowest of the lows so that people could find him. And he came on our level so it would not leave us on the outside peering in at him. Hebrews says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So Jesus was made like you and me. He became a man in order to experience all that people experience. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And when you see that in John 1.14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Just take your pencil sometime and underline among us. He was born in a stable, born as a servant so that he might dwell among us, to be like us. So the place of his birth is important but so is the purpose in his birth. Now, I've met many people in my life that were very adamant about not celebrating Christmas. As I said earlier, we, we don't have any command in Scripture that tells us that we must celebrate his birth, and because there is none, there are a lot of people that say that we ought not to. Well, the main theme of Scripture, no doubt, is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and not his birth, and that may be why that we have so little that's said about his birth. But if Jesus had not been born, then, of course, he couldn't have died. Uh, Steve Ben Connie told me something um, a while ago, something interesting. <clears throat> he said that uh, in his former church that they had decided not to preach during the month of December. But instead, what they would do, they would just gather and they would sing. Well, I can't imagine that at this time of the year, when the world is the stage for the celebration of Christmas, that we wouldn't take the opportunity to stand up and tell the truth about why there is a Christmas. I mean, why wouldn't we want to declare the whole counsel of God about what Jesus came to do? And what a golden opportunity is lost when we don't speak of Christ and about salvation at this time of the year. I mean, Christmas in December is not an excuse for us to be lazy. You know what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy? He said, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. No matter when it is, preach the word of God. We're not to be lax in the preaching of God's word. Now, singing is great, but singing is not in the league with the propagation of the gospel message through preaching. The Apostle Paul said that preaching is the way that God is pleased to save the world. So people are really mixed up about singing. It's a great thing to do. We should sing. But folks, that is not a substitute for the word of God preached. And yet that is exactly what we find in most churches today. The preaching is pared down to 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 if a preacher's really energetic. And the rest of the time is spent singing, spent singing. Well, singing is great. I don't have any problem with singing, but you better not cut out the word of God and the preaching of it to sing. Preaching is the way that people come to know Jesus Christ. That's the way the gospel is told. So I, you know, I can appreciate people that don't want to celebrate Christmas. 
but I challenge the wisdom of it because it's a lost opportunity. Now, there was a purpose in the birth of Christ, and what we ought to do is to accentuate that purpose whenever we have the opportunity. And that purpose is long-standing. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There's a scarlet thread that starts in the Garden of Eden, and it runs throughout the length of Scripture. See, the first promise that we find that Christ would come is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it actually, God was speaking to Satan when he made the promise. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is the proto-evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. Jesus would be born of the seed of the woman, and that's a very crucial point. We brought it out this morning. He is not the seed of the man, because that would have given him a sinful nature. And so for 4,000 years, from the sacrifice that Abel made up until the birth of Jesus, every sacrifice that was made was a revelation of the purpose of God. The purpose of Jesus in coming into the world was his death. Born to die, that's why Jesus came. Now, when any parent looks at a child, uh, there aren't any thoughts of death. I mean, you don't look at your newborn baby and say, well, this baby is born to die. But not so with Jesus. Just a few days after his birth, there was an old man that met Mary and Joseph at the temple when they came to dedicate Jesus there. This man's name was Simeon, and these are the words that he spoke to Mary and Joseph. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He said, A sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Now those were very foreboding words because they warned Mary of the sorrow of losing her son. No parent wants to lose a child uh, before their own death. But Jesus' death was appointed just like his birth was appointed. And so at the right time, the Bible says that he set his face towards Jerusalem and he made that march to his death. And Mary was alive to see it. She was there at the cross and the sword pierced through her soul as she looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and he spoke to her and said, Woman, behold thy son. And she saw him die. What a terrible sight for any parent. But that's what was prophesied. Simeon told her what would happen. But as she was holding that baby, I I scarcely think that she had any idea, really even thought about what that meant. But Jesus was born in the manger in order to die on the cross. I mean, his entire life was bookended by reproach, No one ever would regard a manger as a fitting place for a baby to be born, and nobody thinks that the death of a cross is an honorable death. But it was necessary. It was necessary because the angel told Joseph, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. No salvation unless Jesus should die. And so the manner of his death, it may not have been noble, But the purpose of it, the great purpose to save a great number of people alive for God, that was the greatest purpose that there could ever be. Many are headed for eternal death and are made righteous through the blood of the cross. 
So going back in history and looking at that scarlet thread, we do find it running throughout the scriptures. It's the reason that Noah built an ark. It's the reason that Abraham built an altar. It's the reason that Moses built the tabernacle and Solomon built the temple. And it's the reason that God made Calvary. And that reason was you and me. If it wasn't for our sins and for our death, then Jesus would have no purpose in his. He was born to die. So there's a providential decree and a promised delivery. And now lastly, a powerful display. No birth in a palace, no ticker tape parade, no attendance by delegations of dignitaries, but there was a powerful display. So what is the power of his birth? Well, I'm going to give you three Three things that are powerful in his birth. First of all, there's the power of God's grace. In our text here in verse number 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. In verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, Toward men. The message was first delivered to lowly shepherds. Now, isn't it amazing that the angels didn't show up at the temple? And isn't it amazing that the angels didn't show up at the high priest's house? And the angels didn't show up in Herod's palace, and they didn't appear to Caesar. Oh, it's amazing here that the worst, the lowest of society were the first to hear about his birth. And doesn't that say something about God's grace? I mean, God, uh, Jesus spent his life among the outcasts. He ate with publicans and with sinners. He said that I've come to call sinners to repentance and not the self-righteous good people. His apostles were fishermen. One was a tax collector. Others were political misfits. And later, the apostle Paul would add to that with this perfect agreement For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The mighty and the noble don't think that they need the grace of God. This is what Job said. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Oh, they say we have all that we need, so why do we look to Christ? These are people that don't think that they're sinners, and so they don't think that they need Christ and what he did for them. But on the other hand, Jesus said that the one who has been forgiven much is the one who loves his master the most. And so this is what God did. He poured out his grace on the spiritually bankrupt. Now, people think that they can take God's glory away because they shine brightly enough without him. And that brings me to another thought. There was a powerful display, another one, and that is the power of God's glory. You see, God always does everything appropriately. There aren't any superfluous moments in God. Nothing that he does is outside of his character. And so who else should show the glory of God 
in the birth of his son. Who else but mighty angels? Who else but those that were made in the beginning to glorify him? And they've always basked in the light of his glory. Oh, the mighty seraphim and the cherubim, they declare the holiness of God, the, the glory of God. The angels were there at the creation. The Bible says that they are the morning stars that sang together. Now again, going back to Job, God said, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's speaking of angels. And the angels were there when Jesus stepped off of his throne and they marveled that he would lay aside his glory and that he would condescend to the estate of man. And they didn't understand all of that, which is why the Bible says that angels desire to look into this salvation that God has given us. But you know what? They look into it, but they know that God always does things well. And so their praises reached the greatest heights when the incarnation was accomplished. That was an incredible sight for angels, something they'd never seen before. Angels marveled at what they saw. And you know, I think about that sometimes. You know, I think about what angels must have thought when God created man and then Adam disobeyed God. And what did they think when lowly creatures mock his name, when they trample the blood of Christ under their feet? And what did they think when men took Jesus and they nailed him to the cross? You know, it must have been all that they could do to restrain themselves from coming and destroying us all because the angels have the power to do it. In fact, one angel has the power to do it. But you know something? They won't do it because the heavenly elect angels are always in perfect harmony with their creator. And so if he says no, they stay put. Folks, we can learn a lot about how to glorify and worship God from how angels worship him. And, and one more thought about angels. They must look on in amazement when they see that one day God will elevate us above them. And that thought must have been too much for Lucifer. Probably that was the breaking point that caused his rebellion against God when God said that he was going to elevate man above the angels. The apostle Paul said, don't you know that we're going to judge angels? So God's glory was on display, leading to the angel's refrain of praise. And suddenly there was an angel uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In verse 20 of our text, it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as was told unto them. Now finally, and I'll let you go with this, and that is the power of God's gift. Now, God's gift is the thing that I talked to you about this morning. It was an unspeakable gift. The gift that God gave has the power to change lives. You know, there are people that ask, does God still do miracles today? Yes, God does miracles because every time that he saves a soul, that is a miracle because a new creation is made. That person becomes a new creature in Christ. As the song says, it takes a miracle of love and grace to save a soul. When he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. Now, friends, I don't know how you keep that quiet. 
I don't know how you come to church and not talk about that. How, how can you meet together with God's people and the common thing that binds us together is the death of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he's given in him and how can we come together and not speak of what Christ has done for us? What a terrible shame it is to take Christmas and never preach the gospel of Christ to people that are dying and on their way to hell. You see, God had a plan and God worked through that plan and we're here tonight because the plan that he devised was a perfect plan. And not only did it include Christ, but it also included you and me. And you know what the object of it was? The object in the end is the main thing that we gather together for, the main reason for the creation of man. The object in the end was the greatest glory of God. And do you know what the scriptures tell us is God's greatest glory? The salvation of sinners. People made in the likeness of Christ, giving him the worship that he deserves. That's God's greatest glory. And so I hope that knowing that, that you will be, as I am, desiring, desiring with all of our heart to live by God's amazing plan. What a wonderful thing that God did at Christmas, giving Jesus to come into the world to save us from our sins. Tell somebody about that and help bring glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this time of year. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you that we have the Bible that tells us this wonderful story. We were lost and on our way to hell, but Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. How could we keep such a message quiet? Lord, I do pray that every day that we would tell that story to others, that we would have a glow on our face and happiness in our hearts, because we know that we're saved and we're on our way to heaven and people can see that difference in our lives. The Lord bless us, help us in this Christmas season not to focus on self, but to focus on what you did in sending Jesus into the world. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.